always have cause to be, to be grateful, regardless of the circumstances of our lives. And I just I want to reiterate that again, that as followers of Jesus, those of us who, who know Christ and are walking with him, always have reason to be grateful. No matter what the circumstances of our world, the, the financial crises and the war and the conflict and all the other stuff that, that's going on, we have reason to give thanks because in Jesus, God has shown us his love. He has reconciled us to himself. He has poured out his Holy Spirit. This is why, this is why persecuted believers and imprisoned believers and uh, poverty-stricken believers can genuinely be full of joy and give thanks. It's why we can give thanks today as, as well for the gospel. And this gospel, this good news that has come in Jesus, that is this unshakable hope, this is what, this is what uh, we are devoted to proclaiming every Sunday here at the Bridge Church. And it's what Paul and Barnabas were devoted to proclaiming as they traveled throughout the Mediterranean world. And so we're joining them on the next stop of the great gospel outbreak tour of 47 AD. Uh, There's this infectious good news that was spreading throughout the Mediterranean world. So we pick it up in Acts 13, verses uh, 13. If you've got your Bibles with you, your physical Bible, I encourage you to open it up. I told them to turn the lights on so you could read your physical Bible, but it's also on the screen if you need. Acts 13, verse 13. From Paphos, Paul and his companions sailed to Perga in Pamphylia, where John left them to return to Jerusalem. From Perga, they went on to Pisidian Antioch. On the Sabbath, they entered the synagogue and sat down. After the reading from the law and the prophets, the leaders of the synagogue sent word to them, saying, Brothers, if you have a word of exhortation for the people, please speak. So here we're looking at the context of a sermon that we're going to read from Paul. Uh, they, we read about Paphos. That's where we were last week. That was a city on the western end of the island of Cyprus. That's where they had the showdown with a sorcerer, exposed the false prophet, helped this Roman official, this proconsul, come to faith in Jesus. Incredible stuff. Then they sail across into what is now modern-day Turkey to Perga. And we read that at that point, John, also known as Mark, leaves them, goes back to Jerusalem. That's a little event that's going to have massive ripples later on. Luke just kind of sticks it in there, but it's going, to, it's going to become a lot bigger later on. They travel, Paul and Barnabas, travel 200 kilometers north to Pisidian Antioch. That was a very, very challenging route. It was through a very mountainous terrain that was known for having plenty of robbers and thieves waiting to prey on travelers. This was not... Like Paul and Barnabas, they, they were not deterred by difficult circumstances, were they? Some people today, they're like, well, maybe I'll go on a missions trip, but as long as there's a hotel with a fully stocked mini fridge and a hot tub, then I'm good to go. And maybe that's why John Mark left them. Maybe he was like, I'm not seeing a lot of hot tubs on this itinerary here. I, mean, I think I might need to go back to Jerusalem. But, um, but man, they just like financial... Material hardship, it, it just paled in comparison to the drive they had to tell people the good news about Jesus. And I think about those of us who are ministers of the gospel in the modern global West. And this is a question for us too. Because as a pastor, I, it's not like I'm living in a mansion or anything, but I, I'm not worried about where my next meal is coming from. If, if my material comforts were stripped away, would I still be doing this, right? I think that's a question every, every pastor, every minister needs to face up to. Would I be doing this even if I had everything stripped away from me? 
For Paul and Barnabas, the answer was clearly yes. So they traveled to Pisidian Antioch. You can see to the east, far east there, there's a city called Tarsus. That's where Saul, or, or Paul now, as we're calling him, that's where he was from. And, uh, and it was on a trade route with Pisidian Antioch. So it's a good chance that he might have known people there. They may, there may have been connections. Um, there's obviously a strong Jewish community in both of those. Uh, there's a synagogue in Pisidian Antioch, a place where Jews are gathering for worship and instruction. But, uh, but not just Jews. In verse 16, we read that there were also many Gentiles there in the synagogue. And this was a, a regular feature in the first century Jewish world. That you would have lots of Gentiles who were drawn to Judaism. They were drawn to the monotheism. They were drawn to the higher moral ethical standards. They liked the fact that the God of the Jews actually was a, an upright and righteous God instead of the corrupt gods that the Greeks and the Romans worshipped. So they would come to the synagogue they didn't go all the way. They, they, the circumcision thing was a bit of a stumbling block. So they were like, ah, I don't know about that, but I'll hang out in the synagogue, adopt some of the views and practices of the Jewish people. And, and this group, this, these God-fearing Gentiles, ended up becoming probably the most fruitful kind of people group in terms of the gospel in those first couple of decades uh, as, as missionaries went out. In any case, whether because Paul was known there or because maybe he was wearing rabbinic clothing, somehow he was known, they invite him to come up in the synagogue after the reading of the Law and the Prophets to share some words. And I just, I imagine what this would be like at the bridge. You know, if there was somebody who was fairly well-connected, somebody who was maybe known, you know, had some renown, and they were visiting the church, and we were like, hey, why don't you come on up and say, you know, say a few words to the church, you know? Like, this will be great. And imagine this person got up and just launched into a full-out sermon that totally upended everything that we believed as a church. This is why we don't do open mics, you know? This is, you need to be discerning with this kind of thing. The leaders in the synagogue in Pisidian Antioch were about to get a lot more than they bargained for. So we'll pick it up again in verse 16. Standing up, Paul motioned with his hand and he said, Fellow Israelites and you Gentiles who worship God, listen to me. The God of the people of Israel chose our ancestors. He made the people prosper during their stay in Egypt. With mighty power, he led them out of that country. For about 40 years, he endured their conduct in the wilderness. And he overthrew seven nations in Canaan, giving their land to his people as their inheritance. All this took about 450 years. After this, God gave them judges until the time of Samuel the prophet. Then the people asked for a king. And he gave them Saul, son of Kish, of the tribe of Benjamin, who ruled 40 years. After removing Saul, he made David their king. God testified concerning him, I have found David, son of Jesse, a man after my own heart. He will do everything I want him to do. Uh, so so here's, here is Paul's first recorded sermon. We know that he's been preaching and teaching elsewhere, but this is the first time we really get a sense of what his preaching would have looked like. And, and one of the interesting things to me that I see right here is that he started out by establishing common ground. He started out by saying, this is, this is what we have, this is what we have in common, this is what we share, right? He uses, he uses addresses like our uh, my, my, uh, fellow Israelites, and he talks about our ancestors. He's saying, this is, this is our story, we're in this together. And everything really that he says up to verse 22, nothing that he says is controversial. Everything that he says, they would agree with. 
Even the Gentiles who are there in the synagogue, they would have heard this stuff. They would have agreed with it. Paul is simply retelling their shared story, right? I mean, he's, he's doing it selectively. He goes through 450 years of history in three verses, uh, and he seems to really be focused on getting to King David. That seems to be his main focus, and we're going to see why later on. But nothing that he said so far would be out of place, would be strange to them. They're going, yeah, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. You know, Paul generally did not start with confrontation and abrasiveness. He would save that for later on, if need, if need be. But at the beginning, he establishes common ground. And actually, when you, when you read through Acts, you realize that Paul does this almost all the time. He does this even in Gentile contexts, where he wouldn't have the scriptures to go off on as much, but he still establishes this common ground. He comes alongside of a people or a culture, and he says, this is what, this is what you think, this is what you believe that is resonant with the gospel, and he builds from there. And I think this is a good rule of thumb for those of us who want to make Jesus known in our lives, that we not, we don't start, if we want to persuade people of the truth of the gospel, you don't start by telling somebody, hey, everything that you think and believe is actually really dumb. Did you know that? That's not going to, that's not going to persuade people in any way. You want to build from common ground. You want to say, this is, this is what, this is what I agree with you on. Now let's, let's track that all the way through. That's what Paul's going to do. In the next passage, let's keep going, he, uh, he's going to start to build a bridge from what they share in common to where he really wants to take them. Verse 23, from this man's descendants, God has brought to Israel the Savior Jesus, as he promised. Before the coming of Jesus, John preached repentance and baptism to all the people of Israel. As John was completing his work, he said, who do you suppose I am? I'm not the one you were looking for, but there is one coming after me whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. Here, um, here Paul is, is he's, he's not, it's nothing controversial, but he's starting to depart a little bit from their common shared story. Talking about John the Baptist, this is not like a usual aspect of the retelling of God's story with his people, right? So he introduces John the Baptist, the original Baptist, you know, I, I don't know if you know this, but we are technically a Baptist church. We kind of hide it, but we are. Um, that's the, the Christian denomination that we're a part of. And I always think, you know, some people are like, oh, we have these ancient roots as a church. You know, we can track our lineage all the way back to like, you know, this church father or whatever. I'm like, we go further back than that, man. We're pre-Jesus. You know, John the Baptist, he was born before Jesus. Anyways, that, that's all. That's, that's all tomfoolery. The point is, that, um, that, that Paul makes John the Baptist a pretty important figure in his story. And he's not the only one. Peter, when he's, uh, when he's talking to Cornelius in Acts 10, he's speaking to a Gentile household, and he, and he also mentions John the Baptist as a really important part of this, of this story. In fact, you think about the Gospel of Mark. We... We, we put a lot of emphasis on Christmas, right? I mean, Superstore. I've heard from multiple people that Superstore is already selling Christmas stuff. It's summer outside. It's still 20 degrees. What are we doing? But they're selling Christmas stuff already. We're like, like, we're like crazy about Christmas. We've got evergreen trees in church right now. Crazy stuff. You know where Mark starts his gospel? Not with Christmas. Where, who does he start with? It's an easy one, guys. It's what we've been talking about. John the Baptist. He starts with John the Baptist. 
doesn't even talk about the birth of Jesus. Starts with John the Baptist. For the early Christians, John the Baptist was a really, really big deal. Why? I think there are a bunch of reasons. One is that John the Baptist was, he was the herald. He was the guy blowing the trumpet, going ahead of the king, telling everybody, get ready. Royalty is coming. He was the guy rolling out the red carpet for someone far more important than him. He's the guy preparing the way. This was a role that the Old Testament prophets had foreseen. God spoke through the prophet Malachi and said, See, I will send the prophet Elijah to you before that great and dreadful day of the Lord comes. And Jesus himself says in the Gospels, that's John. John is that Elijah-type figure who goes ahead and prepares people for the coming of the Lord. So, so John is, he's a link between the Old Testament prophets and Jesus. He is the bridge between what the people of Pisidian Antioch already know and what they need to know about Jesus. He's, he's, a, he's a Baptist and he's the bridge. It's a pretty killer combination. Um, so bad, so bad. Anyways, <laughs> John the Baptist is, is he's an important reminder that even the greatest of prophets were just preparing the way for Jesus. Uh, this is what Jesus himself says, or sorry, this is what John himself says about Jesus. And, and Paul quotes him. He says that he wasn't even worthy to untie the sandals of Jesus. Untying the, the sandals, that was... It was a job that the lowest of slaves and servants would do. And John's saying, I don't even measure up to that. I'm not even worthy of that. And you think today about how many people in our world, in our culture, feel totally fine with using Jesus' name as a swear word. Just, just so disrespectfully, right? And they mock him and they disparage him. And, and they did that in the first century too. And you think about the dissonance between who Jesus actually is and how people treat him, when in reality, even the greatest of people, the most revered individuals in our society, the most respected figures in, in our history, are not even worthy to untie the sandals of Jesus. Yeah, that even the best of things that we say and we do just point to the one who is truly good, truly righteous, truly holy. It just is all pointing to him. This is what Paul is already kind of establishing for them. And then he makes the most significant departure yet from their shared common story. Picking it up in verse 26, he says, Fellow children of Abraham and you God-fearing Gentiles, it is to us that this message of salvation has been sent. The people of Jerusalem and their rulers did not recognize Jesus. Yet in condemning him, they fulfilled the words of the prophets that are read every Sabbath. Though they found no proper ground for a death sentence, they asked Pilate to have him executed. When they had carried out all that was written about him, they took him down from the cross and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead. And for many days he was seen by those who had traveled with him from Galilee to Jerusalem. They are now his witnesses to our people. Uh, this is all pretty familiar ground to a lot of us. It's hard to, hard to say how familiar this would have been in Pisidian Antioch. There were a lot of would-be messiahs who met an, an untimely early death 
in those days. It's hard to know if they would have heard about Jesus. But nevertheless, Paul is filling them in. Here, here's this guy that we're about. His name's Jesus. And he was, he was crucified. He was executed. And it was our people as well as the Romans who did this. Our people turned on him. And then Paul talks about the, the resurrection. And he just, I love how Paul just speaks it like a fact. You know, he just says, this is what happened. And I think that's something for us to learn from as well. I say this often, but the resurrection of Jesus is not an idea. It's not a theory. It's not a metaphor. It's not a warm, fuzzy feeling in your heart. It is a solid, rugged, historical fact. It is, it is something that happened. And if it didn't, if it can be disproved that the resurrection happened, then you have destroyed Christian faith. Christian faith rises and falls on a historical event, the resurrection of Jesus. And Paul just states it. This is what took place. We've got witnesses. There are people who saw it. This is what actually happened. Now I said that, and by the way, I think at this point maybe the leaders of the synagogue are kind of thinking, I don't know where this guy's going with this. Can we cut the sound or something? Because this is getting a little off the rails here. But actually what Paul is saying is not a dramatic departure from the, the story as, as much as I kind of implied before. There, it's, it's actually very much in line with the story that they all share. And not just because Paul continues to use terms of kinship. He says, fellow children of Abraham. He's still saying, hey, this is us, this is us. But even, even some of the other things he says, I mean, he says that the rulers of Jerusalem didn't recognize Jesus, yet in condemning him, they fulfilled the words of the prophets that are read every Sabbath. They were accidentally living into the story that they all shared. I think this is a good um, reminder for all of us how easy it is to know the Bible, to read the Bible, and yet to miss the implications for our own lives. I do this sometimes. I'm like writing a sermon, getting ready, and I'm thinking, oh, this is good for this person. I really hope this person is at church this week because this is, this is going to really nail them, you know? Like, this is going to deeply convict them. This is so good. And then I go, oh, no, I'm the guy. Holy Spirit just convicted me. I'm the one who needs to hear this. I'm the one who needs to listen to this. See, it's so easy to quote the Bible at people and to miss how it's actually speaking to us and piercing through the hardness of our hearts like those leaders in Jerusalem who unwittingly were playing the villain in the story that they should have known. Paul's saying, look, all of this was in accordance with the scriptures. It was in line with the story. And Paul doesn't say exactly how, but I think if he had, he might have quoted Isaiah 53, Isaiah 53, well-known passage where the prophet Isaiah looks forward to, to a servant of the Lord, this mysterious figure who's going to take the sins of, of his people upon himself. Isaiah 53 says that he was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain, like one from whom people hide their faces, he was despised, and we held him in low esteem. Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering, yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him, and afflicted. See, Isaiah says this servant is going to be hated and despised and rejected by his own people. That's what had happened to Jesus. This is, just, this is part of the story that they all shared. 
And not only that, we could go even further. Paul in, in verse 29 uses this word, and, and, and in the English, we just breeze through it. It says that they hung Jesus, they took him down from the cross. But the Greek word that Paul uses for the cross is not the common word for cross. It's a word that is more often translated as tree or pole. Now, why does Paul use that word instead of the regular word for cross? Well, almost certainly because it's the word from Deuteronomy 21, where we read that anyone, in the Greek version of the Old Testament, says anyone who is hung on a pole is under God's curse. And now that's Greek right there, guys. When you're like, it looks like Greek to me. That's actually what Greek looks like. It's the same word. It's the same word in Deuteronomy 21 and in Acts 13. I think what Paul is saying is that what happened to Jesus was that he took that curse that we read about in Deuteronomy, that curse that sin incurs, he took it upon himself. He bore that on himself when he went to the cross. Paul's planting these seeds. He's saying what happened to Jesus at the cross was not a departure from the story. It wasn't a break from our understanding as Jews. Instead, it is the fulfillment of everything we've read, everything that we've known. And Paul is going to take that theme of fulfillment and he's going to go full throttle with it in this next section, especially in relation to the resurrection. Verse 32, Paul says, We tell you the good news. What God promised our ancestors, he has fulfilled for us, their children, by raising up Jesus. As it is written in the second psalm, To you are my son, today I have become your father. God raised him from the dead so that he will never be subject to decay. As God has said, I will give you the holy and sure blessings promised to David. So it is also stated elsewhere, you will not let your holy one see decay. Now when David had served God's purpose in his own generation, he fell asleep. He was buried with his ancestors and his body decayed. But the one whom God raised from the dead did not see decay. I know there's a, there's a bunch of Old Testament quotes there. We might get lost in some of that. We uh, sometimes think that Jesus just kind of popped into history 2,000 years ago. Could have been born an American as well as, uh, as a Jew for all it mattered. But, but that's not true, of course. He had, he had to be born a Jew. And, and he had to fulfill these, these promises of God to his people. And, and so the, the, the more we understand the Old Testament story, the more we understand the Old Testament scriptures, the deeper and richer our understanding of Jesus is. The point here, though, is that Paul looks at these promises given to King David especially. You remember King David, right? That was the guy that Paul's Old Testament retelling arrived at. That was the climax. He goes back to King David. He says, look, all those promises that were given to David could not have been fulfilled in David. And we can look at all of these, but for the sake of time, let's just look at the last one. Psalm 16, God says to David, I will not let my Holy One see decay. I won't let my Holy One go down to the grave. Speaks it to David. But of course, David died, right? His body decayed. If, if Paul's audience had dug up David's body, I'm fairly sure they would have found a body that had decayed. I actually Googled it. I said, how much does a body decay after a thousand years? And the first page of results gave me no answers, and so I just gave up on it. But I'm pretty sure there would be a lot of decay. Uh, it would not have been a pristine body, right? David died. His body has seen decay. And so it can't be fulfilled in David. And this is what Paul is saying. Paul is saying, don't just stop with David. 
You have these promises in the scriptures. Track them through. Go beyond David. Track them through to their fulfillment. This maybe feels a little bit weird and out of place, but when I was thinking about this, I thought about Toucan Sam. Okay? Toucan Sam, the cartoon mascot for the Fruit Loops breakfast cereal. I remember these commercials from when I was a kid where Toucan Sam is snoozing away blissfully and all of a sudden he's awakened by some scintillating scent. And he goes, oh, I gotta go find out where this is coming from. And he follows the, the trail, you got blue haze. Uh, and he arrives inevitably at some new Fruit Loops flavor which is like intensely satisfying, right? And, and he, he, his whole tagline is you gotta follow your nose. Don't just settle with the scent, you gotta follow your nose. You gotta get to the source of it. And I think this is what Paul is saying to them. He's saying, don't, don't just settle with the scent of fulfillment. Follow it all the way through. Track it through. It can't have been David. But it was Jesus. For, for Jesus, he, he didn't decay. His body didn't. I mean, he went down to the grave, and then he was resurrected with a body that would never, never deteriorate. deteriorate. Never die again. This is where the fulfillment is found in Jesus. So track it through. And, and, you know, he's talking about the scriptures here, but I think that we could say the same thing about the human story in general and even about, even about the desires in the human heart. Let's say the, the, this deep, ingrained desire we as humans have for connection with, with others, right? And some people think that that, Deep desire can be satisfied through shallow texting conversations and exchanging memes. Or, or people have this deep desire for a just and righteous society. And they think that by protesting this cause or that cause, that somehow that'll come to fulfillment. Look, there's nothing wrong with texting people or, or participating in, in a protest, in, depending on the cause. But... But th that's not the fulfillment of that. If you think that, that those desires in you are going to, to be fulfilled through those activities, you're sadly mistaken. You've got to go deeper. See, being a Christian is not about getting rid of desires altogether. Which I think is, is what Buddhists, that's kind, of, that's kind of the mindset of Buddhism, is you've got to stop desiring, let go of desire altogether. Being a Christian is not about not desiring. It's about desiring more deeply, more truly. See that? Being a Christian is not about getting rid of desires, but desiring more truly and more deeply. It's getting to the source. This is why Augustine, the saint in the, in the fourth century, said, You have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our heart is restless until it rests in you. Because in the end, it all points to him. Everything, just it, it, even the twisted, corrupted stuff, you straighten it out in our, in our world, it points to him. So track it through. Um, and, and, and this, by the way, there's another aspect to this because we've been talking about kind of the human need to, to follow the scent, get to the source, and to, to find in Jesus the fulfillment. But this only works because of something even more fundamental, which is the character of God. And this is, I think, what Paul's main point in the sermon actually is. I think his main point is saying something about God's character, specifically the faithfulness of God. He says in verse 32, What God promised our ancestors, he has fulfilled for us, their children, by raising Jesus. What God promised our ancestors, he has fulfilled 
for us. He's saying to them, look, you know all those promises and, and you, you didn't see the fulfillment of them. You settled for something lesser. But God was faithful. He didn't, he didn't give up on that. He didn't fail. He didn't change. He fulfilled what he said he would do in Jesus Christ. Paul is saying God is faithful through the ages, even if you don't see it. And this is a struggle for us, isn't it? Because we tend towards doubt. Especially when we don't see something yet. Especially in an instant gratification kind of culture, right? We struggle with this. I mean, we live in a world where, you know, back in the day, if you were really into a TV show and the episode ended and there was a cliffhanger, you had to wait a whole week to find out what happened. And I know some streaming, you know, shows do like the dropping one episode a week. But for the most part, you just watch one episode after the next. You don't have to wait to find out what happened. You just go right, Netflix does it for you. You don't even have to click a button. It's just like next episode starting in three, two, one. Bam, there you go. You know, we live in a world where, where back in the day, if you wanted something, you would uh, go to a store and they didn't have it. Oh man, what are we going to do? Well, they're going to have to order it in. It's going to take a couple weeks. And then they call you and then you still have to drive and you have to go get it. Now you click one button and it's there. Like the next day, right? We ordered something for Zachary yesterday on Amazon and it found out it was going to come on Tuesday. He was so ticked. So upset. Tuesday? It's Saturday. Three days? Are you kidding me? <laughs> we live in a world where, you know, back in the day, you, if you wanted to write a letter to somebody, and I'm barely old enough to remember this one, but you'd write, you know, you write your handwritten letter, you stick it in the mail, and you send it off, and then if you get a response within a month, you feel really, you're really grateful for that, right? Now you shoot off a text, and if you don't get a response in five minutes, you're like, well, this friendship's over. <laughs> Clearly I'm being ghosted here. <laughs> we live in this like hyper, hyper instant gratification world. So the idea that we would have to wait to see the fulfillment of something God has put on our hearts is, is, is just un, it's unthinkable, right? But this is not the way that God works. He simply doesn't, he's not an instant gratification God, right? Like he takes his time, he does things in his own timing. I mean, the Israelites had to wait 400 years between the promise of the promised land and when they were actually in it. 400, 450 years, it was a long time. They had to wait hundreds and hundreds of years between the promises of a Messiah and when Jesus actually came. And think about individuals. David was anointed the future king of Israel. And it took 15 years before he actually ascended the throne. Meanwhile, Saul is chasing him around the Middle East trying to take his life. You think David ever wondered, is this really going to happen? Am I really going to be the king? I mean, look what's happening here. Or Abraham, 75 years old when God promises him that he's going to have a son. You'd figure at that age God would fast track things a little bit, right? Like of all, of all times, this is the time where you're like, okay, maybe this one will happen more quickly. 75 years old, doesn't have a kid yet. 25 years. 25 years of waiting for this. Every year, 81, 82, 83. I'm sure Abraham is going, really, God? Still not? Still? Are you really good for this? See, this is what God does. He takes his time. But in the end, he is always, always faithful. And I need to know this. I need to remember this. You need to remember this. Because, because we've got all these promises in the scriptures. Let's say you look at, at a promise where, where Jesus says that, that if you are willing to lose your life for his sake, that you will in fact gain it. 
You will gain real abundant life. Or Jesus says, if you seek first God's kingdom and his righteousness, all of these other things that you're anxious about, that you're so worked up about, all of those things will come into, come into uh, fall, the pieces will fall into place if you, if you seek first the kingdom and his righteousness. And you might go, well, I don't know if I can trust him. I, I don't know if I can I don't, I don't see how this is going to work. I don't see how if I'm willing to lay down this stuff that he's actually going to give me life. But he's faithful. He'll do it. We've seen it in Jesus. You might have a promise like at the end of Revelation where Jesus says, I'm coming again. I'm going to make all things new. I'm going to wipe away every tear from your eyes. I'm going to get rid of, of evil forever and ever. And you might look at the world around you and you might go, I don't know how it's going to happen. There's so much brokenness. There's so much evil in the world. I can't believe it. But believe it. Because he's faithful. He's good for his word. You can trust him. We've seen it in Jesus. We've seen the fulfillment of God's promises. We've seen the embodiment of God's faithfulness in Jesus. This is what Paul says in 2 Corinthians. For no matter how many promises God has made, they are yes in Christ. And so through him, the amen is spoken by us to the glory of God. All of God's promises are yes in Christ Jesus. Stop doubting. Trust him. Trust him. We've seen it in Jesus. He is good on what he has said he would do. This is what Paul has done in this, in this sermon. Started with common ground. Tracked that through to Jesus. Kind of shown how this is, this is the faithfulness of God. This is what he says now in terms of response, application, the final kind of appeal to the people. Verse 38. No, yeah, verse 38. Therefore, my friends, I want you to know that through Jesus, the forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. Through him, everyone who believes is set free from every sin, a justification you were not able to obtain under the law of Moses. Take care that what the prophets have said does not happen to you, Look, you scoffers, wonder and perish, for I am going to do something in your days that you would never believe even if someone told you. According to Paul here, there are two choices about what you do with what he has said. You can believe. You can put your trust in Jesus. You could put your faith in the faithfulness of God as displayed in Jesus. You can do that. And if you do that, Paul says, there is forgiveness of sins. This, this burden, this heavy burden that everyone carries because of sin is lifted. And even if people, because I know there are a lot of people in our world today who are like, who, don't, who would say they don't have this burden of guilt or sin. They do. It's just manifested in different ways. It's anxiety. It's, do we live in an anxious world? Do we live in a, do we live in a fearful world? I mean, we live in a shame-filled world. All of that, that those, are just, those are just manifestations of that burden of sin, even if people don't call it that, that, that weighs on humanity. And Paul says, put your faith in Jesus, and that burden is, it's gone. It's, it's, it's released. And spending some time, we, we, um, looking at 1 John in our Thursday morning men's group, and just that Jesus cleanses us from all unrighteousness, this cleansing, this freeing, it's just gone. 
Paul talks about justification. That, that word means that you're declaring someone to be innocent. You're giving them a favorable verdict. And, and so the idea here is that when you put your faith in Jesus, that God sees you as innocent. And this is something, Paul says, that could not have happened through the law of Moses. The law of Moses showed people what sin was. It showed people what God's will was. But it didn't, it didn't help people be justified in God's sight. You were all guilty through the law. But Paul says this is what Jesus has done. Faith in him means that you are justified, declared innocent, washed clean, your sins removed, your sins forgiven. That's pretty good. But there's another, there's another choice. And that choice is to be a scoffer, Paul says. To take this news and to say, no, don't need that. Don't believe it. There's no way. Paul, uh, he quotes an Old Testament prophet, Habakkuk, here. And Habakkuk, God showed him that God was going to discipline God's people because of their unfaithfulness. And he was going to do it through the pagan empire of Babylon. And Habakkuk knew, and, and I think he was, he was representing the people when he said, there's no way, God, you wouldn't do that. You wouldn't do, you, you wouldn't work through a, a, an empire like Babylon. You, you, wouldn't, you wouldn't discipline your own people through an evil country like that. Why would you do that? And so there are people who just kind of scoffed at that, who said there's no way. Just like in the first century, there were people who scoffed at the idea that salvation would come through Jesus, through the cross, that God would work through a shameful death, like a, like a death on a cross. And people just went, there's no way. There's no way. And they just kind of scoffed and disregarded it. And still people today just kind of scoff at this whole thing. God, sin, the cross, resurrection, whatever. And Paul is saying here is that the same fate that awaited the Jews in the 6th century BC was the same fate that would await the Jews in the 1st century, anyone who scoffed at this. And I think the implication is that it's the same fate, ultimately, that awaits those who would scoff and disparage this today. If you decide you want to face the consequences of your sin on your own, apart from God's gift, God says, okay, but the consequence is separation from him now and forever. It's a pretty stark choice. It's one that we intuitively kind of resist and chafe against, but that's what it is. It's, it's, it's faith in the faithfulness of God and Jesus Christ, or it's faith in our own ability to deal with our sin, and that doesn't turn out very well. Again, I know that's stark, and I know, I know there's bad news there, but I always think that it's, it's the bad news that in some ways makes the good news even gooder, even, uh, <laughs> even better, is, is knowing where we would be apart from God's grace and his faithfulness, and then to see the difference that he makes. Guys, he's faithful. He does what he says he's going to do in Jesus, he has brought to fulfillment the promises of long, long ago. And he still does it today. He's still faithful today. And so whatever it is that you are going through today, whatever it is that, that promise that you're holding on to, that, that, that God-glorifying desire that he has placed on your heart and you don't see it yet, you know that he's given you this, but you don't see it yet and you're struggling, hold on to faith in him because he is faithful. 
He will do what he says he's going to do. He doesn't fail. He doesn't forget. He doesn't change. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. He is faithful. And that, for that, I am so thankful today. Amen? Amen. Amen. Worship team, come on up. And let's pray. And, and during this next song, if, uh, we'll, we'll already have some of our leaders over there on the, on the side. And uh, if you would like to, to pray with somebody, or if during worship or even during the message, God has really impressed something on your heart that you think might be for the whole congregation, we'd love to hear that and pray with you about that. So even during this next song, as we sing about God's faithfulness, uh, we just want to kind of open up that space for you to pray and, and to interact. Uh, let's, uh, let's give God thanks. God, we are thankful for your word. Thankful for the word that you spoke through Paul to the, the people of Pisidian Antioch 2,000 years ago. Thankful, God, for, uh, for the truth that is still the truth today. That you are faithful. That what you have promised, you have done. And what you have promised and, and we haven't yet seen the fulfillment of, you will do. And so we praise you, Lord. We give you thanks for, uh, for your faithfulness. We give you thanks that we have seen that in Jesus. And I pray that you would encourage those of us today who are just kind of holding on, who are really struggling because, because they haven't seen the fulfillment yet. And I pray, Lord, that you would encourage them today, that you would remind them today of your character. I pray for those, Lord, who... Um, who have not known you and, and, and they are hearing this today and Lord, they're hearing that the deepest desires in the human heart and in fact, the story of humanity finds its center in you. I pray that you would show them that today, reveal that to them today by the power of your Holy Spirit, that they would believe and that their sins would be taken from their shoulders and that they could walk in the freedom that comes through faith in you. I pray, Holy Spirit, minister to us. Remind us again today of who you are and what you're doing. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for joining us at the Bridge Church in this way. If God has spoken to you through his word, or if you're simply just wanting to reach out to pray, or just wanting to know a little bit more about our church, you can do that through accessing our website. There you can connect with us and also have access to different types of content. We are a church that lives to know Jesus Christ personally and to make him known. We believe that he is the hope of this world and wants to give you your hope as well. We believe that the best news ever has come in and through him. May you know him more and make him known today. We'd love to hear from you.